This is Annabelle Steele, and you're listening to the Hayseed Scholar from Professor Brent Steele. You may call him Doctor. I just call him Dad. Here's my Uncle Kyle to introduce the show. Recording in studios from Utah to the UK and anywhere in between, you never know where Professor Brent Jameson Steele will be dropping knowledge and bringing you the best guest the universe has to offer. This is the Hayseed Scholar with Mr. Worldwide, my brother, Dr. Brent Jameson Steele. I like that one. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Hayseed Scholar podcast. I'm Brent Steele. Thanks for listening. I hope you're all doing okay, staying safe and healthy during this pandemic. This is an interview I did with Professor Halvard Lira of the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs. I did this on a Friday morning about a week and a half ago or so, so it would have been on May 1st, on May Day. Uh, I did it in the morning here in Utah, but with the time difference, he was speaking to me from his home outside of Oslo. In uh, his Friday afternoon, so um, so I, I got up a little bit earlier and started the interview around 8 a.m. local time, and I did it outside. Uh, so you'll hear every once in a while a car driving by um, when I unmute myself to jump in and ask uh, Halvard a question. But I've known Halvard and um, many of his newbie colleagues, especially his good friend Benjamin de Cavarjo and, and someone who's now become a really good friend of mine. Um, I met him and Ben uh, six years ago, a little over six years ago, in Weimar at a workshop in Germany. And I think I had run into him before, but that was really where I got to, to meet and interact with him and, and Ben. And we've become really, really good friends. Uh, since then, I've visited Norway and Nupi uh, many times since then. And um, if we're ever at the same conference, we always try to get together and uh, hang out uh, and catch up. And so this, for me, um, was incredibly helpful and enjoyable and important uh, for my own sort of I guess, uh, emotional well-being just to get to see one of my really good friends and talk to him uh, about these kinds of things that we talk about on the podcast, but just to catch up with him uh, because I, I really am missing folks like him and uh, Ben and, and Aisha, who I I chatted with uh, on the last episode. And so I'm kind of finding these Zoom versions of the Hayseed Scholar podcast to be um, better than I expected, at least in terms of um, being enjoyable and, and at least seeing my friends during this otherwise very stressful and anxious time. So we talk about uh, Professor Lira's growing up in Oslo uh, in a family of academics and what that environment was like growing up, his interest in history, which remains one of his major research uh, topics or, or, or interests in his uh, research today, uh, his experience getting a master's degree at the LSC, how David Campbell's writing Security, uh, when when Halvard read it in the late 1990s, really made an, a big impact on him. Uh, we talk about his joining NUPI, uh, the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, and the cohort of colleagues and friends he's made there over the years, many of whom are also my uh, good friends. And that sort of NUPI um, 
cabal of folks that he's been a part of for, in some cases, going on over 20 years now. Uh, he talks about the stories behind his uh, publications, the story of how the hi- history or historical IR section of the ISA came together and how he and a, a few other um, individuals were able to, to bring that together. Uh, he talks about his approach to writing, uh, what it's like to be, as he's been doing for quite some time, raising uh, two teenagers. And then we kind of close with his reflections on how he sees the pandemic shaping international relations uh, going forward. So it's about a buck 20, about an hour and 20 minutes. I enjoyed every single moment of it. I hope you do too. And um, once again, this is uh, research professor Halvard Lira on the Hayseed Scholar podcast. Enjoy. I was born in Oslo. Uh, a beautiful summer day. Uh, I was was I was uh, born uh, delivered by a, by a cesarean. That's why I'm so beautiful, <laughs> humble. Uh, no, jokes aside, I was born in Oslo. I grew up um, just outside of Oslo, but really, sort of Greater Oslo. Um, my parents had built a house on my grandparents' uh, property. So I lived there, I'm a single child, um, but I had my grandparents, my father's parents were living basically just right next door. And I lived there for a while. And then this is a a semi-detached house. So after a while I moved into the other part and uh, with my then wife and had a kid there. And then when we eventually moved, we moved 15 minutes away. So I've been fairly stable most of my life. Where did, um, where did you go to school in the same neighborhood? Yeah, yeah. it was neighborhood school. Um, private schools are not very common in Norway at all. Most people attend uh, public schools. Uh, there are some private high schools, uh, but not many. And so most people just go to sort of regular uh, primary, secondary, high school, and high schools. And when I grew up, um, there was no no real um, selection of people for high school either. So you would just tend to go to the one that was closest to where you grew up. Now, over the last couple of decades, there's been more of a a stratification in the sense that some high schools are clearly uh, attracting the better students. But that's a, a stratification based on on the quality of students and the quality of teachers, and, and it's not something you can pay your way into because these are public schools. What? Um, so you would have been going to grade school in the 80s? Like I think we're you and I are about the same age, yeah? Yeah, I started school at the age of seven in 1983 and finished high school in 95. So were you already thinking about international relations and politics? I mean, was your family such that you guys talked about it at, at the, the dinner table, the quote-unquote dinner table, so to speak? Or or was it something that you kind of can't, or, or history, you know, in, in, in the U.S. we call it social studies is sort of a catch-all for all of that. Um, well... I think I'm my that I ended up in international relations is is sort of coincidental, but uh, I mean we were 
always talking about things at home. Uh, my father had his uh, master's in history and was actually going to become an historian. He had his, his first job out of finishing university was uh, as, a, as an um, associate professor of history. But then he immediately got sucked into politics and, and uh, basically spent his entire working career as, a, an, as an politician administrator. So we were talking about politics a lot. My mother um, is a sociologist by training, uh, eventually became professor of sociology at the uh, University of Oslo. Uh, so both, both of them had higher university degrees. And uh, both of my grandfathers were professors in different ways. My father's father was a professor of American literature. My mother's father was a professor of, of medicine. Um, and all of my grandparents had, had university degrees. And so, you, even, so you were around academia ish. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Growing this up. Is, uh, academia is actually the only thing I know. <laughs> I mean, the, the, I, I, it actually took me some years. This is a, you could call it a, a Bordeauxian moment when you suddenly realize your privilege, right? In, in, the, in the sense that you, it took me a number of years at university before I realized that all the things that I took for granted were things that others were just experiencing for the first time. Because you don't, for me, this is how life was. I mean, I, my mother would have university professors, international professors coming in um, while I was growing up. And I would sit in and listen and I would chat with them and uh, really sort of really, really uh, top-notch scholars, um, American sociologists, British sociologists coming in. But I thought this is, this is how how life is. So I was extremely blind to my own privilege in that sense uh, because I didn't know anything else. And any siblings? No. Okay. So, yeah. so you really were you yourself interacting with these scholars yeah. as you were growing up. Yeah. Yeah. And did you know even then that you want, that you wanted to be maybe not necessarily the topic, but that you also wanted to be an academic? Yeah, I think, again, this is, in a sense, overdetermined. Um, I hadn't really sort of planned on being an academic as such, but I knew that I wanted to go to university. When I finished high school, what I knew I wanted to do is I wanted to um, study history. I always loved history. I, I I, my father, as I said, was a trained historian, and my mother also had a part of history degree as part of her, her university degree. Um, and we had sort of history books around the house, so I would read them when growing up. These sort of really 19th century, um, very sort of action-filled histories of sort of the, the great men in history tradition. So I would read about the, the first battle of this. I mean, this made a huge impression on me. The first battle of panzered ships happened during the American Civil War. The Merrimack and the Monitor. Still remember that. So, so I grew up with history all around me. And I wanted to study history because I was deeply dissatisfied with uh, how I was taught history at school. I generally knew more about the topics than my teachers uh, because I read not only the books that we were assigned, but probably some other books as well. Because I just devoured history. Um, so that's what my, my only plan upon finishing 
um, high school was to start at the University of Oslo studying history. And you can do that for a year and a half. At that time, you could do that for a year and a half because it was built on modules. The Norwegian university system at that time was based on a more German model. Now it's switched to a more sort of Anglo-American model, but uh, you would build your degree on modules. So you can have one year basic subject history, and then you can add, add on intermediate subject history. But before you can go on to do your master's, you had to fill, up, fill out four years of different things. That was my question. And then after studying history for a year and a half, what now? And, but I also had, and this is, I, I can't remember when, I think this is something that happened in high school. Um, we we're given these different brochures, uh, the, what can you do after finishing high school? And I had read about this topic called international relations. And that this was, I think, in uh, a brochure from the LSE. And I didn't really know what international relations was. But I thought it sounded fun because I, I always found Norwegian politics to be somewhat myopic. I was more interested in sort of international wars and stuff like that. It sounded interesting. So international relations, that sounded really cool. So I think at some point between sort of second year high school and... and uh, the middle of my undergrads, I had decided that I wanted to do a master's of international relations. I wanted to do it at the LSE. Now, the reason for the LSE was primarily about London. I wanted to, I mean, when you grow up in Norway, um, and Oslo is a, I, I like Oslo a lot, but it's a, the world's biggest town or the world's smallest city. I mean, make your, make your choice. It's a, it's wonderful if you, if you like cities that don't really have much of a city in them. <laughs> it's very close to nature. It has, uh, I mean, you can go skiing on decent slopes within inside city limits. You can go sailing in the fjord, uh, lots of parks. I mean, there are lots of things to, to, to like about, about, about Oslo, but uh, I decided that I, at some point I wanted to live in a, in a truly uh, metropolitan city. So can I ask, though, so why... Um so that moment for you actually only happened after you were at the university of Oslo. It didn't happen before. Like when you were in high school, were there any like other Norwegian kids that were thinking about getting their undergrad elsewhere, like going to college elsewhere outside of Norway? Uh, like was the possibility of going to London for, for your, for your initial college ever entertained, even going to the United States or other parts of Europe? some people probably did end up doing that, but that wasn't really much. That wasn't really on the agenda, I think. And part of the reason is, of course, that um, higher education, university education in Norway is basically free. Um, we have a very, very uh, good system, uh, student loan system, uh, nationally run, uh, which is quite useful if you're studying abroad, but again, with the costs of going to Britain or the US, I don't think too many people would do that for undergrad. And we have a, a the numbers have been increasing and people have been doing it more since I went to, to university. But I think uh, if you're cost savvy, you, you aim for your master's degree from abroad. 
Get and did, did any of your professors at the University of Oslo suggest LSE or like were your parents suggesting LSE? This was just something that from the brochures was was yeah, this is attractive. This is something from 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 brochures in high school, and and of course at some point I realized that the LSE was a uh, had a stirring reputation, and my mother had I don't know if she'd been guest researcher there I can't remember. Um, no, I think she 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 spent a while as a guest researcher. That might have been in Lancaster when she she was. When she was writing her first Cambridge book, as I usually say, <laughs> um, funnily enough, with the, the with John Haslam as her editor. Oh no, kidding! No full, kidding. Full circle. <laughs> yeah, full circle. Um, so, did so, you go with her when she went to Lancaster? I mean, did you ever had you gone to to Britain at all as a kid, or like when your parents would do a fellowship somewhere or anything, or a visiting gig? Yeah, yeah. I and mean, we used to travel a lot when I was a kid. Uh, sometimes uh, because my father was going for some conference somewhere and he would just sort of pay for us to come along. It'd be a cheaper way to sort of ex- extend the stay and have a holiday. Uh, travel with my mother uh, sometimes and she would, go, she would go to conferences and stuff like that. Um, and so I had been to London a number of times. The fact is I, I didn't really... I wasn't too fond of London when I was there growing up. I found it to be sort of crowded and noisy and the streets are narrow. I, I, in a sense, I prefer the layout of, of, of Paris, for instance, right? I mean, the grand boulevards, the openness. So it took me uh, living in London to actually to love London. But no, to get back to your, to your question, I, I think the LSE was just... It had popped onto my radar at some point. Uh, I it remained on my radar because I realized that this is a place that will look nice on the on the on the resume, and it's also a place that people know of. I mean, I grew up uh, just outside of Oslo in a community where people would typically be, go on to become uh, economists, lawyers, doctors, uh, work in marketing or sales or um, as stockbrokers, stuff like that. But the LSE is a school that people even in those kinds of trades have heard about. So it has sort of, uh, you, don't, you tell them that you, you've done international relations and they're, yeah, yeah, whatever. Uh, yeah, I went to the LSE. Oh, that's pretty good. So um, it was a little bit of that. Then, of course, when I wanted to do international relations, had I been sort of more single-mindedly focused on creating a career I would have gone to Aberystwyth. with. What did, so were you, um, were you matched with like a professor? Or I, I kind of know how the UK system works when it comes to PhD, but when it comes to um, uh, the masters, are you, are you already identifying a professor or a group of professors that you're working with? Or is it one of those things where you kind of figure it out after, after you're there for a little bit and do some tutorials? No, you're, you're being assigned one. So this is completely random. I was, I was just, we were five people who were assigned William Wallace as our supervisor, but it's utterly random at that stage might have changed now and might be different in different places, but at the LSE in the around 2000, that was it. And were your interests in, in, in history 
this the same sort of uh, historical IR interest that became kind of your bread and butter uh, as the scholar we know you today, or were you a little bit experimental with different topics? I need to sort of refreshments here. No, I think um, to step back for a second, what happened after I finished my first year and a half at University of Oslo, I had to sort of fill out a couple of more years before I could start on my history degree, which was, which was my plan. So I thought, well, political science doesn't sound too, too fun, but not too shabby either. Um, so I'll go do political science. And what had happened during the latter part of my studies of history is that I've been doing a course on a term, actually a full term on nationalism. And nationalism is, of course, one of the topics within history where you actually get in touch with social science theories. I mean, you read your Anthony Smiths and your Ernst Gellners and your Bendig Danderson and so on and so forth. And I realized that, hey, this theory stuff is actually quite neat. Because when, 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 well, as history was taught at that point in, in high schools in Norway and even undergrad, it's almost like the Rankin telling you how story, the, the story, history as it really, as it really was. So no one had really sort of bothered uh, telling us much about the importance of theories for uh, historical narratives. And I was probably very, very slow in that I hadn't sort of picked this up uh, much more clearly at an earlier age. But it was, to me, it was sort of a revelation that, oh, all these different theories tell you different things about the same history. Um, yeah, I was probably slow. But I find that really, really cool. And I thought, well, so maybe, maybe there's political science stuff with theories. Maybe that's interesting. And so... Two things happened. First is that I uh, immediately found a really cool crowd of people at the University of Oslo and political science. My cohort was really great. We had a really good time. I was, loved hanging with those people. And most of them were going to go for their master's in political science after undergrad. And also I discovered that it was actually probably much easier to do historical stuff uh, from a political science angle that it was to do theoretical stuff from the history side. Because Norwegian history at that point, that has changed greatly, but it was really not very explicitly theoretical uh, and was still fairly uh, sort of national history. You would tell the story, there was sort of the... the, 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 the so how, how should I put this? The the, the uh, yeah the methodological nationalism was fairly strong in, in Norwegian history at that time. That has also changed greatly. I mean, I mean, don't get me wrong. Uh, things have become very different in the Norwegian uh, in Norwegian history departments. But um, so I discovered that maybe the stuff that I was interested in, which was sort of theoretical takes on historical things uh, that would be easier to do from political science than from from um, from history so at that point i was still looking forward to sort of i wanted to go to the lse and do a master of international relations but i didn't really specialize in international relations or international politics when i did did uh, 
my undergrad in political science, comparative politics was more that was driving me. Um, and I also did this this one term subject on, on Western European studies, where we would re- read um, Michael Mann and uh, Charles Tilly, and there's the, the Norwegian um, Stein Rockan, who was a contemporary of, of Tilly but died much earlier. Um, so comparative macro sociology was really what I thought I was going to do. I was I was actually thinking about writing my master's thesis in Norway about uh, something nationalism related. And then that changed. Why? See how, how well I set this up? <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, it changed. And this is, this is, um, this is in the spring of 1999. And, uh, Ivor Newman was giving a course at university of Oslo um, on identities in global politics, I think it was called. And this was a big thing because, um, he had been sort of the, the, um, enfant terrible of the, of the department, or he had sort of, there had been this big debate a couple of years earlier between Norwegian, different Norwegian political scientists and Ivor about methods and stuff. So he was sort of an outcast. He was working at NUPI, the Norwegian Institute of International Affairs, but he was, and there was the students who had actually pushed for him to come and give a course and the department allowed it. And that course completely changed uh, my so interests or a way of thinking about many things. And it's, as I said, I had sort of in my undergrad years uh, come to uh, embrace theory, not for theory's own sake, but for, for the variety of theories and the, the things that they open up and the things they can tell you about different things. And this was at the, uh, I was already at the master's level by this stage. I think it was my my first term. Yeah, I think it was a spring term in '99. Must have been the first term of of my masters. And we started reading. We read Ivor's own book, Uses of the Other, which has just been published. And we read David Campbell's Writing Security. Yep. Yeah. Which and this is this is so Writing Security is coming out the first edition in the early nineties, but there was a revised edition that it came out in like 96, 98. I want to say. And then uses of the other, um, uh, Ivers book. Cause I, I remember reading both of those in the early two thousands, but the, I remember both being published the, the revised edition of Campbell and then Ivers book in the late nineties, right? 98, both of them, yeah. I think. Yep. And, uh, writing security is, is, the single most important book for my academic trajectory, I think. Because although we were taught theory uh, in political science and international relations, remember for my intermediate subject, undergrad political science, we were told that, yeah, we put this really, really wacky text on the curriculum just to show you the the scope and the and the the stuff that's out there, but this is really, really some 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 far out shit. And that was Alex Wentz's uses of the other um, anarchies. What states make of it? <laughs> that was considered by the University of Oslo Political Science Department, nineteen ninety 
seven to be really, really radical stuff. So you can imagine uh, that's the sort of stuff you've been told, and then you open you then you open writing security by David Campbell. <laughs> you start reading, and mind officially blown. Um, I think it was two things. One of this, I've this is to me a completely new way of thinking about politics, and also the fact that I felt that I really sort of understood this. This is some complex stuff that I actually I'm actually able to understand it and make sense, and I can apply this to things I see around me, and it makes me think of politics in a completely different way. So that was enormously important. Um, and that whole course was really, really um, transformative for my academic trajectory. I also wrote a term paper that I thought was really good. So he invited me for lunch at the Ministry of Defense, where he was work working at the time, and uh, told me I should write an article. And that eventually became an article in Norwegian. Um, it's on a topic that wouldn't fly internationally, but it was sort of interesting from a Norwegian perspective. Um, and he also offered me, if I remember correctly, um, uh, work as a research assistant. So this is Ivor. That's that's Ivor Newman. And when and when? So this is when you're trying to figure out how to transition from LSE to to back to Norway, or no, no, no. Um, uh, I have a double masters. I have one masters from Norway and one from the LSE. So what happened was that I, I finished my undergrad in this fall of ninety eight. Ninety eight. Yep. And then I started my master's uh, in Oslo and did a year and a half. And then I went to the LSE for a year and then I came back and wrote my Norwegian master's thesis. It was a two, we had two-year master's in Norway, one year at the LSE. So I'm, I had LSE sort of in between. So you had uh, the LSE, MSc with distinction, uh, in international relations and then you also have your ma from university of oslo 2002 in political yeah. science okay yeah so i i read oh, i had started my norwegian masters i put that on hold uh, and went to the lse and came back and finished and what the only thing i i lacked that point from returning to oslo was the master's thesis which was at that time a fairly substantial project i think i wrote 140 pages or something like that. So yeah, when I, I went to the LSE, I sort of already had been exposed to, to constructivism and post-structuralism. And I worked as a research assistant for Ivor because he was translating a text that he had written in English, uh, which was uh, published in a book by, by Lena Hansen Ole Weaver on the different... Uh, Nordic approaches to Europe, and he translated the his chapter or his what the draft for his chapter, which was almost book length. He, I translated that into Norwegian and dug up all the sources that he had forgotten where were. So uh, I had this really our archive hound digging to find out where he where he'd read all the stuff and. Um, so I sort of, and that was a, uh, that book is 
a sort of Kaselic inspired uh, discussion of the relationship between Norway and Europe. Um, so yeah, I had been exposed to all these kinds of different ways of thinking about politics and thinking about international politics before I went to the LSE. And by that stage, I had sort of switched from an idea of writing something about nationalism uh, to doing um, uh, international relations, first of all, and, and applying um, some sort of post-something framework. Um, so I ended up writing my dissertation at the LSC about how to go about using discourse analysis for studying for policy. And I wrote my Norwegian master's uh, partly on that. Uh, it's a very incoherent thesis I, I see when I look back on it, but a number of things came out of it. Sort of, uh, including what became your PhD, right? I mean, including in one way what became my PhD, because uh, this is—I uh, sometimes see my my whole intellectual trajectory as it's easy to see a pattern when I look at it now. Um, most of it just happened. <laughs> it looks very patterned, but it's not. It wasn't. It wasn't conceived as a pattern. It just sort of things happened in, in one after the other, and and here we are today. Well, in um I have a sort of or not mechanical, but institutional question in the, so at a certain point after you get your master's at the university of Oslo and uh, at LSE, you join NUPI in 2003, I believe. Right. Well, actually um, earlier when I returned, because what happened was that uh, Ivor was pleased with the work that I'd done for him. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, said that, well, if you're looking for a supervisor, I'll be happy to supervise your Norwegian masters. And um, I said yes. At that time, he was also the editor of Cooperation and Conflict. And they part of the deal he had at NUPI was that uh, as editor of Cooperation and Conflict, he would get sort of, uh, sort of an intern, or rather a, a student scholar, which someone who would be writing their master's thesis, sitting at NUPI and doing all the editorial assistant work. So upon returning to Oslo from the LSC, I never really returned to the University of Oslo. I started working at, at NUPI, uh, September 1st, 2001. That's interesting. So did, <laughs> you know where I'm going to go with this question, uh, only because I'm a typical narcissistic American. So did, <laughs> um, because I started the University of Iowa with, with my PhD program right at the same time. Um, but it obviously made a bigger impact for us than it did anywhere else. But did September 11th make an impact um, right after joining NUPI? Or was it one of those things that just was in the background? It was obviously important, but not necessarily. Oh, it was hugely important in many ways. Um NUPI is, for those who don't know it, is a sort of hybrid between your traditional research institute and a think tank. Uh, 
we're producing much more research than your, your typical think tank. But we do have this obligation that was set up in the, in, the, in the late 50s as sort of a, a way of providing better information for the Norwegian public about international affairs. So it's part of our, our mission statement is that we are to enlighten the, the masses, if you like. Uh, so I say it's usually a, a very bad sign for, for world politics if more than three of my colleagues are on the nightly news. That means things are going south in, in many different places at the same time. But a couple of the most sort of high-profile commentators in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 were at Newby. So this is a constant topic over lunch in, in the hallways. Um, and of course, you're working with international affairs. How can you not be affected by 9-11? Now, it didn't really... It had an indirect effect on research because right about this time, some of the bright people at Newby decided that this is a good time to study uh, American hegemony. So we made an application for the Research Council and got funding for a project on, on uh, American hegemony, which was renewed after a couple of years. And I was able to get some money out of that. I can't remember what I actually wrote. I wrote something, I'm sure. Uh, so the, 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 that program didn't really produce any massive academic tome, any statement, if you like, but it kept a lot of us funded, which is important when you're a junior scholar. And you have um, an early and major uh, article, I mean, years before you got your, you defended your PhD with, with Nina, with Dr. Greger, on Norwegian strategic culture after World War II, cooperation and conflict. And so this must have been something... And the other thing that I think is probably happening then, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're obviously part of a cohort dish of uh, Newpy folks who I would guess are at kind of at the same point in their trajectory in the early 2000s. So is this when you're meeting uh, Ben, uh, uh, Nina, uh, maybe Uliaka? I, I, I don't know. I'm just wondering what the, the sort of... Oh environment is like at, at Nupi in, in the early to mid 2000s. Now you're getting into the really fun stuff, right? <laughs> it's, uh, I'm, I'm smiling because these are all of our friends, but, uh, but um, I, I, yeah. I don't always know where to place them in the, in the no, I met, chronology. I met Benjamin de Carvalho in the spring of 1998 when we were doing student politics together. We were uh, we were hijacking the uh, or more Benjamin than me hijacking the curriculum discussions in political theory at the Department of Political Science, and we managed to kick out some some uh, dusty old book about democracy and inserting Weber and stuff on on the curriculum. We allied with some of the professors who were pissed with the other professors. That was fun. Um, so I've known Benjamin for for. 22 years and counting. Um, and so I arrived at Newpy in 2001. Um, I'd already met Nina on that project, which led to the article you mentioned, which was a Nordic cooperative 
uh, project on different sort of security things. Um, Uli Jakob was already there. Ivor was coming and going, as Ivor was always doing. I mean, he would be at Newby and then he would sort of have a stint at the Ministry of Defense and a stint at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs and he would go to the University of Oslo as a professor in Russian studies for a couple of years. But he was sort of a, a constant presence in a sense. I think uh, I, I have in writing referred to Newby as the house that Ivor built. <laughs> at least for that part of Newby, that is true. So Nina, Nina Greger was there, Uli Jakob Sending was there. I arrived in 2001 as a, on a student scholarship. Benjamin arrived, I think, in 2003, two or three, I can't remember exactly, finishing up or writing his uh, Cambridge PhD. Um, a number of other peoples also started at Newby around the same time. There was a big cohort of people who came in. Many of us came in as as the on these student scholarships and then we just stayed managed to claw our way uh, into the business and this is a, a sort of a, a i wouldn't call it a boom period but there was a certain lack of seniors um at newpi so the younger people would sort of uh, move up in the world and and there would be room for us who were even younger also, they needed people to do legwork. I mean, a number of these people spent a lot of time crisscrossing Africa, interviewing people in UN missions and stuff like that. I never did that. But I did a number of other things. I mean, I went to the UN in, in uh, New York conducting interviews for a project. Uh, you do all these kinds of things that people say that, well, we have some money. Will you write a report about global security threats? Yes, sure, I'll write a report about global security threats. That will give me funding for two months. That's the other thing about being this hybrid institution that we are, that you don't really have the time to sit down and decide that you will focus on something and this will be your career's project. I mean, you, you, in some ways, it's, it's glorified consultancy, or glorified only in that you can get to call yourself doctor or professor because it's, the pay isn't glorious. Um, but it means that we're doing a lot of different things. If you look at my CV, you know, I have a... There is... There are some threads there, but there are also a number of things just coming out of different projects to try to turn it into an article and see if it flies and you move on to the next project. You have, I, I mean, I, I'm looking at the explosion of articles from, from 2005 to all the way up through and then after your, your, your PhD in 2011. And you're absolutely right. I mean, there's all of these uh, articles. I mean, the, the big ones that I obviously know, either I knew at the time or after I met you, then I, I went back and looked at, um, were, were your article with Nina, your anarchy uh, in um, IR and ISP in 2007, your, um, uh, your RAS article on Eustace uh, uh, Lipschitz, uh, which became, uh, you have a couple of them, but the one in RAS became very important for me for my restraint book. And then um, you have your Global Society article, which I remember citing at some point, the one from 2009. And then obviously the the the, the big bangs of IR, which has become like a big bang for you as well <laughs> um, with, with Benjamin and, and uh, John Hobson on uh, the myths that your teachers still tell you about 1648 and 1919. 
so that, I mean, there is an historical angle to all of these. There's a conceptual historical angle to all of these. Um, but you definitely are spreading your wings pretty widely, right, throughout all of this. Yeah, and part of this is uh, the security article with, with the strategic culture article with Nina that comes out of the project. I was clearly number two on that article um, in that sense that she's been doing much more work on, on strategy and, and security stuff than I've been doing. Um, I, I had the historical angle on that one. Um, the Lipsius article came out of uh, my Norwegian masters, actually, because Ivor at some point said, well, we should talk more about, well, everyone's talking about practice. We should look at prudence. So he made me read Lipsius on prudence. I can't, still can't decide whether that made sense or not, but I found Lipsius to be very interesting. <laughs> so I, so, and I had all this material and, and, uh, and when you're young and stupid, you think you have all the time in the world. So I say, well, let me just write this up as an article. And I, this is also fun because I, I presented this as a paper at an ISA. I think it was probably San Diego, the, the one at the, the out of town San Diego. <laughs> yeah, it's the one that was in the sort of Soviet style uh, complex that we were all yeah, in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> in 2006, yeah. In 2006. No, and, 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 the, by that time, I'll, I'll tell a convoluted story. Um, what Benjamin and I had discovered was that it was because Benjamin had started at Newby and we discovered that we had this sort of common interest in, in stuff that was sort of partly history, partly IR, partly macro sociology. Um, so we wanted to work together on these kinds of things. And we discovered that it's sort of, you send your stuff to, if you want to go to conferences, I've always said, go to conferences, go to conferences. I self-financed my first ISA just because I should be at a conference. You should send your stuff. Uh, and but a few years in, we discovered that, well, it's much easier to get on the program if you have a big shot as a discussant or, or, or a chair or both preferably. So... I think for the 2006 San Diego, we had Chris Brown as our chair or discussant on the panel where I presented that Lipsius paper. And he was sitting in the bar one night. I was just passing by and I said, oh, come over here. And he said to, to Nick Renger, who was at that, that time the editor of the review, that Harvard here has a really cool paper on Lipsius. You would love it. So I promptly went back home and wrote up that paper into an article and sent it while there was still some hope that Nick remembered me and he would at least, at least read it before rejecting it. But then they sent it for review and it was, it was accepted. So that's, um, but that's something, looking back, I don't regret doing it, but I look back at the stuff that I read. That article is so well researched, I must say. I, I think I read anything that could be found on secondary literature on Lipsius. And I read two different English translations of his six books on politics. I mean, I, I, I can't, these days I'm just happy if I get to read a full article for anything I'm, I'm writing, right? I mean, I think I have five or six of these boxes, because this is before everything became digital, boxes of printouts and copies of articles, and I probably sort of, half a meter of just material on Lipsius. Just like, it's insane. <laughs> Who has that? 
<laughs> but it was wonderful too, right? I mean, you obviously enjoyed it, like while you were like just diving in and marin- marinating and all of it. Yeah, and this is of course why I'm doing research. I'm, I'm not in the saving the world business. I uh, I do international relations. I do historical international relations. I I do them primarily out of my own interest. I get curious about things. I want to find out about things. When I grew up, I just loved playing detective. That's sort of like, yeah, and I, to this day, I, I love crime novels. Not the long Swedish ones, but the shorter Anglo-American ones from the from the sort of mid-20th century. Rex Stout, Agatha Christie, those kinds of things. 250 pages. Sort of whodunit. But I, but I, that's what drives my my interest in, in, in stuff. I, I note things, and I'm curious about how do they come about. Sometimes they are contemporary. Sometimes I write things that people actually care about, sort of for contemporary reasons. Uh, but other time, thing, times I just find myself wondering about things and want to explore them. And that's sort of the Lipsius angle. I, I started reading on Lipsius and discovered this is interesting. What can I get out of this? How can I um, satisfy my curiosity? So that was what that was all about. And that's really what most of my research ideally is about, satisfying my own curiosity and hopefully writing it up so that someone else will also find this interesting. So there's a, um, with the 2011 Millennium article with uh, BDC and and um and john uh, hobson there's also a let's take the piss quality to it as well um let's let's <laughs> uh, uh i mean there obviously there's a, de- a detective aspect to it of blowing up uh the the already blown up big bangs of 1648 and 1919 but i also think that there's a little bit of a we're going to stick it to how these things have shown up in textbooks. So I, I'm kind of curious as to what the story is behind that article, because that's one I just assign every single time to my international relations theory graduate seminar. And they, they all are just, especially the ones that are really think they're ahead of the curve when it comes to IR historiography and everything. And then they're just like, they don't know how to, how to process it in a good way. But I'm just wondering what the story was behind that. <laughs> No, that's um, well. There, there is an element there of, of, of taking the piss, yeah. And I think it comes partly out of our own experiences uh, at University of Oslo. Uh, Benjamin has this story about when his first sort of seminars. One of the master students, who was sort of seminar teacher, started the IR class by writing 1648 on the blackboard and saying, "This is this is where everything starts." Um, <laughs> so part of it was like saying, yeah, not so much. Um, but the longer story there is that I had this interest in, in Benjamin has of course had this long standing interest in, in, in the 30 years of war and 1648 and wars of religion, uh, but maybe even more so Britain during, during Elizabeth and, and the, Tutors, but 
so he had this long-standing interest in that part of the story, and I had dabbled in historiography, um, partly because I'm interested in the historiography of, of Norwegian IR, because my great-grandfather was one of the was a professor of history and one of the earliest pioneers in setting up what became known as the Norwegian Committee of International Relations with Rockefeller fun, funding, actually, in the 30s, which eventually turned into nothing. But I had this sort of interest in, in, in Norwegian historiography of IR, sort of what were they thinking? Why didn't we have the same kind of trajectory as some other countries? Uh, the longer question being, of course, why was Norwegian international politics, as it's called in Norway, so Americanized? Why wasn't it more British influenced? Um, so I had this, I had read all the stuff about the first great debate, the, 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 sort of the work of Peter Wilson and Luke Ashworth, uh, and David Long and, and all these guys. So I knew that debate fairly well and Benjamin knew the 1648 debate fairly well. And we were, again, this is, comes out of an ISA. Many good things happen in ISAs uh, and not all things stay at the ISAs. <laughs> Some things, some things can be mentioned afterwards. Now, this was, uh, I say, New Orleans 2010. 10. Yep, you got it. An epic ISA. Uh, and we picked up the flyer for the Millennium Conference. And the topic was dialogue, I think. And uh, I was like, nah, we, we dialogue. We, we don't have, have anything to say about dialogue. So the initial idea for the article is Benjamin's. So I'll give him credit for that any day of the week. Um, but he's like, sure, sure, sure. We can write about dialogue. We can write about how these myths that we know, I mean, the myth that there was everything started in 1648 and the myth that IR started in 1919, we can blow them up. We can say that this is this is sort of this, the failure of dialogue, the failure of, of sort of 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 dialogue between mainstream IR and um, uh, and the more specialized studies of, of 1648 or historical IR and historiography. The lack of impact historical and historiographical uh, work has had on the discipline. Well, then, okay, cool. So Benjamin went off skiing in Whistler, I think. And I was left alone at the uh, Louis Armstrong International, and I wrote the abstract, uh, drinking a beer in the in the uh, in the uh, sort of waiting for my plane to, to leave. Do you remember which beer? No. Oh, that is such an important moment. Okay, fine, that's fine. And we sent it, and I think we actually went and presented it in London for the Millennium Conference. David Chandler was discussant, I remember. I can't remember when we brought John aboard, um, but at some point, Benjamin uh, had met John at a conference and, and John had heard about the paper and he was super eager to join and we were like, yeah, cool. So I usually say that uh, Benjamin is the guy mainly responsible for the for the 1648 part, I'm the guy mainly responsible for the 1919 part, and and John is mainly responsible for the flair and all the invectives. Uh, but it's a, it's a truly, but it's funny because this is quite clearly my most cited article, and it's also probably the one that was 
the easiest to write. It almost wrote itself. Mm-hmm. And and was it a pretty easy review process too? Um... Yeah, I, as I remember, it was fairly easy. So there was no pushback from some of the, I don't know, the folks that want to defend 1648 and 1919? Or... Funny thing is you don't really find many people defending this. I mean, we've never, I, I, I haven't seen anyone really pushing back against the arguments that we made. And we, 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 what we did was we large, we, we summarized the arguments and we looked at textbooks and to see whether any of it had, had any impact and didn't. Um, but this is interesting because people don't, uh, this is my thinking, people don't repeat the myths of 1648 and 1919 because they necessarily believe in them. They just haven't been exposed to the, to the myth-busting. And this is just like, international relations is a big discipline. People do very specialized stuff. Uh, when people write textbooks, my hunch from skimming a number of textbooks way back then is that many textbook writers have a close look at existing textbooks and write their own take on the same thing. And it's, it makes sense. I mean, how could you be, if you're writing an intro text about IR, you can't possibly be a specialist on all topics. You'll be a specialist on something and you all sort of try to come up with something sensible to say about the other topics. And uh, not too many people bother to read up on, on 1648 or, or on historiography. They're just sort of taking it as common wisdom. Um, so, no, there wasn't any pushback on that from the reviewers. I mean, there was some... some I remember, I think, one of the reviewers, I think that might have been Martin Hall, possibly, gave us some really, really good feedback on myths. Um, but no, not really. It wasn't really a hard review process. When did you and Benjamin and the rest of uh, your uh, merry band of historical IR folks start the push for an historical international relations section of the ISA. Uh, because I remember I signed on to it before I had even met you uh, as in support of it. But um, I'm trying to remember when this was. It was probably earlier part of the last decade of the early part of the 2010s, maybe. Yeah. And the thing is, I mean, as I said earlier, Benjamin and I had discovered that, well, putting big names on is a good way of getting your panels on. So we've done that for a number of years. I mean, we, for EISA or what it was called SGIR in Turin 2007, we put on five panels, I think, commemorating the 30th anniversary of Hedley Bolton Archical Society. We did the same thing at the ISA. Um, so we had this sort of, but you had always to send this through some section. I mean, you had to send it through the English school or through diplomatic studies. So I found I volunteered one year to be program chair of diplomatic studies section, um, 
one of the reasons, of course, being that I could I could place some of my interesting colleagues on the program, um, and that worked out really well. But uh, but um, we sort of said, why do we always do this circumspect thing of, of trying to place historical stuff, trying to sell it as English school, trying to sell it as IPS or as theory or as diplomatic studies when what we really want to do is historical stuff. So we had these discussions and we had them going back, I don't know, maybe to the mid 2000s. I think we had, we, we, because, and we had them with a number of people. I remember I met Dan Nixon at my very first ISA. I was introduced to him by Ivor. I met Dan, Dan and Patrick in the hotel bar in New Orleans in 2001, I remember. Um, so Dan was involved in those discussions. Andy Paris, who Benjamin accidentally met at the ISA in San Diego, the one we discussed earlier, was in on it. Dan Green, who um, we met through doing English school stuff, was in on this. Um, and we have been discussed. So I say... I would say that this had been sort of floating around since sort of 2008, 2009-ish. And then what happened was that we were at the ESA bisa conference in Edinburgh. It must have been 2012, I think, 11 or 12. And the peop- a number of people have been setting up or circulating this call for a section on religion and IR. And then Benjamin had run into someone at the conference who uh, he already had discussed about the section. Some American scholars can't remember who they were. And so he returned to our joint hotel room. The Halvard, now, now, now's the time. So I said, okay, if we're doing it, we're just we're just going to copy the religion and IR things, right? So we basically stole their whole layout, uh, stole their whole way of doing this online created this petition um, and if I remember correctly, uploaded it from our hotel room in Edinburgh and started collecting signatures. And I had the brilliant idea of sending it to all the previous presidents of the ISA. So we, we, uh, that was, I think that was quite clever. So when we sent it to the ISA, we had sort of like five or eight previous present presidents signed up on our list. So we, we got the number of, of required signatures really, really quickly. And I think it was 50 at that time since increased to 100. But we, I think we had 200 signatures or something like that in, in within, a, within a week or two. Um, yeah, so that's the backstory. It's, and, and you would have had to have gone in front of the governing council to make the pitch, right? Because I, I remember being on the governing council throughout all of these years with my affiliation with uh, international ethics. And anytime there was a new section, the person that was part of the petition would go in front of the governing council. So was that you or, or Ben? No, or? no, no. Uh, actually, we, um, again, uh, we met, <laughs> Benjamin and I met when we were doing student politics, right? Uh, so we, we, we decided that rather than one of us going in there, being young, relatively young at least, uh, not that well known, uh, we sent Dan Green. Dan had already been head of the English school section, so he was sort of known to ISA uh, headquarters. So he argued the case. 
And I think with the number of signatures we had, it was really sort of an open and shut case. I remember, that's right. I do remember him at whichever I say it was making the, making the sell and it was a slam dunk case. And now it's become one of the, one of the fastest growing, continually fastest growing sections of ISA. Yeah. I don't know if it's still growing super fast, but it's, uh, last time I checked it's sort of like 450 members. So it's a mid-sized ISA section. Uh, there's been no problems in getting papers and panels. Uh, and there's a, a community of people. I mean, I'm really from this being an idea that we wanted to have a section where we could send our own papers <laughs> and the papers of, of people we cooperate with. And we wanted sort of an institutional home to this being a thriving section with a number of people doing super interesting things about in historical international relations. I'm, I'm, this, I'm really actually quite proud of that. It's, uh, but we were facilitators in that sense. We, we've created a room for people to um, do historical work and present historical work and get high quality feedback and comments on historical work. And that didn't exist when I came into this business. So where do you do your writing? How do you do your writing? So you sent me just to give all of our listeners a backstory to this. You sent me a wonderful PowerPoint presentation of failures, and uh, you had like a little cartoon on one of the <clears throat> one of the slides of <laughs> um, you know your writing is awful at first, and then it gets ripped apart, and then it gets better, and and that kind of stuff. So kind of actually two related questions and where do you do your writing? How do you do it? And then do you really see writing as the cartoon in the, in the uh, PowerPoint that you sent me indicated as kind of a linear process or what do you think? I've been thinking a lot about this actually, because I've been listening to your, your uh, previous podcasts. Those of you listeners who haven't already listened to the old uh, existing podcast should go and listen make sure to download load Aisha's podcast so she can get closer to Yelena's podcast I'm very good uh, but they are great they are excellent and and uh, particularly in these times when we're all sitting around our our living rooms or our spare bedrooms or whatever listening to your friends uh, chatting about things is extremely soothing it's also a bit devastating but it's it's soothing um, I, I agree I agree so where do I, and I've been thinking about this, and, and uh, I, I was out walking the other day, I was like, Hallvard, where do you do your writing? Where do you write anything at all? <laughs> Apparently I've written a number of things over the years, but I, I have very little recollection. No, um, I used to be, like yourself, a third shift writer, as you refer to that as an excellent description. Most of my... Uh, most of my LSC master's thesis was written between 11 o'clock and 3 o'clock in the morning. The final revisions, the final six months of my PhD when I did all the sort of heavy lifting, writing everything together, that re happened really between sort of 10 o'clock uh, at night and 3 o'clock in the morning. Um, I don't think I've slept more than five or six hours there for a couple of months. Uh, I can't do that anymore. I'm too old for that. 
Um, now, my kids are now old enough that I could, in principle, do it because they'll put themselves to bed. I don't have to sort of enforce that much anymore. So I could, in principle, just sit down and write, but I can't write into the night. I need my sleep. Um, then I have to get up in the morning. So the answer is I write here and there and everywhere. If I have an idea, I, I mean, some days I'll, I might do this, the subway ride from where I live to, to downtown Oslo where new bureau offices are is, is 23 minutes. So if I have an early or a late train, which is not jam packed and I get a seat, I, and I'm, I have an idea, I can write out 300 words on that subway ride and I will not notice where I am. I'll just write it. I find as I get older that I, I write really well in airplanes. Uh, again, I think the, the, the clue is to zone in. And I was, I think one thing I've learned over the years or have been forced to learn is to be able to zone in for shorter periods of time and to do it anywhere or everywhere. So I don't really have a go-to place for writing unless that place is a state of mind. And um, that state of mind is not something that you can just decide upon. That's, and that's one of the things I find challenging about writing. I've always been an easy writer. I've always found it easy to put down words on, on paper. Um, but that's one thing. And the other thing is that if you, you want to be inspired, I mean, you know, if you want to write something that comes out of any serious thought, you need to find that, that flow, that zone. And that can happen, again, that, that's why I'm saying that I can write anywhere or anywhere. I mean, that can happen on, on the subway, on my way to work. It can happen in an airplane. Most likely, I think it usually happens at my desk at work or... Uh, in my home office, sitting at the dining table where I usually sit. Uh, so can I ask about the mechanics of that then? Because if you're at your office, if you're at home, you can you can type it out if you get that moment, right? But if you're on the subway, because I, I, I totally agree, that's that's when I get a, I, I get a lot when I'm walking my dog. So for me, um, as I mentioned to, to other guests of this podcast, what I'll do is I'll, I'll be like, oh, I really got to get this down. This is a really good idea. And then I'll like type it into my notepad of my phone. If you get it on the subway or whatever, do you, do you write it down in a little notebook? Do you put it in your phone? Do do you have your laptop with you that you could just pop up? I mean, how do you get those passages or, or thoughts into something so that it doesn't leave your mind forever? I'm very bad at this. Um, and I think part of this is, is, is sometimes I'll, I'll, if it's a really good idea, I usually don't have these sort of longer, I don't get that kind of inspiration out of the blue for longer passages, right? I mean, I can get, our, I can get ideas for structures of arguments, um, or I can get sort of one or two good sentences. And what I'll sometimes do is I'll, I'll uh, pop up my phone and send myself an email. 
So that's my sort of way of remembering that. But, and I, and I agree with you, walking, jogging, taking a shower, all these things help. I mean, increases oxygen levels in your brain. It's, I think it's fairly simple physiological stuff that happens. If you're sitting there working with a problem, you need to get up. I mean, you need to do as Aisha suggested, you need to go to lift some heavy weights. Um, but, and that might trigger an idea, but usually I, I'm, I should probably be better at this. And I tried for a period of time to sort of carry with me a notebook and a pen. And I ended up never really writing much into that notebook. <laughs> I'm probably very uninspired, right? Um, no, my, my mind doesn't work like that. That was my conclusion. I might have sort of snippets of ideas, but those are usually snippets that I'll remember or I'll send myself an email, but I, I've never had much use for sort of the capacity to write down things on the fly because my ideas on the fly are usually very short. Right. Right. Which is, but, but that, that can be good, right? Because then you don't have to worry about getting it all out uh, at that moment. No, that's true. That's true. Uh, on the other hand, I, I envy people who sort of have this sort of spurts of, of inspired insight. Um, I'm more of a sort of working bee in that sense. I, I need to to sit down. And I find that sort of, to me, uh, sitting down with the computer is actually better for thinking. Now, you also write, asked about the writing process. I tend to again I'm, I'm very very bad at this i mean kids don't do this at home i, I most of the other people that brent has interviewed has much better processes of writing than i have they have all these sort of evernote files and they have binders and uh, they use all these fancy uh, tools i don't i literally don't i on the other hand though i do tend to have an idea about the entire argument before I start writing. So usually my first drafts are fairly similar to my last drafts. I, so you, you are a little bit of a um, perfectionist isn't the right word, but you have sort of the, the whole idea ready to go before you actually put anything into pixel. Yeah, sort of. I have this sort of general idea. And also this is, I think one of the reasons why I um, find that um, getting feedback on my work needs to be very sort of, I need to fine tune the times for getting feedback because usually when I present something, I already have thought it through and I've written it out, maybe just in skeleton form, but uh, the argument is there. And comments on that, I mean, one type of comment is that you can change around everything, and I usually don't, or they're just sort of comments on the margins. So I, I've 
come to realize that for me to have useful feedback, actually the, 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 the conference format is not all that productive for me. I mean, I, I could get, I usually can get better feedback from sending in an article and getting a review of it than I can get from through a conference. And that's uh, on me. And I, I think I, I would had much more useful feedback if I presented ideas, like three pages. This is something I've been thinking about. How can I attack this? Uh, it's also because I'm stubborn, of course, and, and I refuse to change my, my papers. <laughs> uh, but it's part of but it's also part of my writing. I think my, my primary skill as a writer is that I'm quite good at stitching things together so they seem to flow logically from one another even if intellectually they might not I mean I, I'll be the first one to admit that but I'm actually pretty good with these sort of small binding words and the turns of phrase that will sort of lead you from point A to point Z in the argument and make you think that this actually works. So when you get feedback, like the typical feedback I will get from, from our research director, Uli Jakob Sending, a dear friend who thinks very differently than I do, he always suggests, well, you could just sort of throw everything around. And um, he might be right, but throwing everything around, <laughs> this takes a lot of work. <laughs> and it for, would force me to rethink everything. And I'm... Again, I'm stubborn in that sense. I, I think when I think I've thought it the best way I can, I'm not too keen on changing it. Well, I think it, I mean, that kind of clicks with, with, with my view of your work because I've, um, anytime I've received a paper from you or you and BDC or, or um, a, a paper ahead of uh, sort of a, um, a workshop at Newpy. I'm like, this is basically good to go, <laughs> like from my view. And I know that people think I'm a pushover and I'm not. It's just, I can tell that I have friends that send me different things at different stages. And you tend to be one that sends me stuff at basically the penultimate, if not the final stage. Um, and then for me, then it just becomes not how do you change this, but this now is our starting point for a really fun conversation. It's not like we need to be transactional about it at all. Um, so you mentioned this briefly in, in uh, your reflections on like where you get your ideas for writing or as you're writing. But um, so what, what are the different ways in which you take care of the scholarly self? You sort of um, I know that you have worked out on your deck and, and done a lot of um, good construction and that kind of stuff. But how do you decompress, recharge? What, what are the. What are the ways in which you handle the stress of, of, of life? I think it, again, should be mentioned to those listeners who are not uh, familiar with Norwegian academia that uh, Norwegian academia is probably a lot less stressful than academia in a number of other countries. Um, I, right now, don't have any teaching, but even, I think, at teaching positions... The teaching load is usually lighter than it is in Britain and the United States. Um, we've had strong trade unions, so working weeks are not too onerous. Um, 
most of us are permanently hired state employees. So the, the, the whole, there is a logic of publish or perish, but it's nowhere near the Anglo-American uh, level. And if you're hired at university in a permanent position, some people are hired at universities and just stop publishing. Now, uh, I do publish, uh, and I sort of because I'm at a different kind of institution. But I live under different kinds of stresses in the sense that we are supposed to find eleven months of our salary every year, twelfth month being holidays. So what we do uh, is we write applications all the time. So what can become really stressful is that if, you, if your funding is, is running out and you haven't sort of scored any applications for a while, that is stressful. But overall, I would say that when I compare my life to the life of most of our friends and peers, I think Norwegian academic life isn't super stressful. Now, with that caveat, of course, there are a number of stresses in my life. I mean, I've been, a, a, for all intents and purposes, a single parent for the last 11 years. Uh, I have two teenagers now. Um, and life, of course, has stress. So what do I do? I, I work out. I like lifting heavy weights. Uh, I heard Aisha Sarakal said she does it because she did it. It gives her a feeling of, of mastery. I do it for many reasons, but one of the reasons I think it's excellent for, for getting out aggression, <laughs> lifting some really, really heavy weights. That's, uh, that's good if you're, if you're, if you've had a bad day at the office for just recharging, um, going out for a run or, or a walk. I live 10 minutes from the forest. So I uh, spent most of the Corona lockdown going on walks or runs, I think. Uh, and I, as you mentioned, I have a garden. I love being outdoors in the garden. Um, that sort of thing. Uh, in winter, go skiing. Um, I'm a big, I have become a big believer in, in the, the connection between physical well-being and, and mental well-being. So uh, if my body is, is sound, my mind is likely to be sound as well. And um, so, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll usually go out and do something. How is international relations as a field going to change or not after and through this pandemic? Well... And or how will you change or not <laughs> because of this pandemic? Obviously, we've um, already all, all of us changed, but uh, we've all, all of us have changed in that we've, we've communicate with our friends largely through our screens. Um, and I find that many people that I've spoken to have, apart from the existential dread at different levels that we all lived through, um, many people seem to find time for reflection, time to think about how we spend our time, how we want to spend our time, um, who the important people in our life are. So I find myself, I, I do the shopping for my parents who live 
12 minutes away by car and an old aunt who lives seven minutes away by car because I don't think they should be going to the grocery store these days. Um, and I find I, I speak to my older relatives much more than I usually would do. I think I'm a fairly good son, but I, I, I find that I, I spend more time talking to them. Um, and I like that, and I will try to continue doing that. I find that I spend more time checking up on my many different friends in the business around the, the world. I like that. I mean, it's, it's good to have this talk with you. I mean, I've been talking with Aisha a couple of times. I've been speaking with Oliver Kessler. There's a number of people who I usually would not perhaps be talking to that much in between conferences. But when there are no conferences, we need to find different ways of talking. And these are, these are some of my closest friends in the business and, and people that I like to talk to and hang with. And um, I, I think we will increase the use of these kinds of mediums. We'll have more Zoom or Teams or FaceTime chats, even outside of conferences, just to catch up. Because it's nicer to have this catch-up chat than to send an email. Uh, so I think we'll do that. And uh, when Benjamin and Xavier and I are, are in Copenhagen and walking from one bar to another, we'll call you in Utah. <laughs> compliment you on your newest Cambridge book. I mean, these things, we'll do that more often. I don't know if you will write Cambridge books more often, but, but we will be better at socializing, I hope. Um, and I think um, many of us will think about how we travel. Because in Norway, at least, there's been a lot of discussion about over the last couple of years about whether we should reduce our flying to reduce our carbon footprints. Um, I foresee that a number of scholars that I know, at least, will travel differently. I'm not sure people will travel less, but I could see myself thinking that, well, if I'm going to North America for a conference, I'll um, make it sort of a tour. I'll go to that conference, but I'll also stop in Utah and then and, and catch up with Brent and give a talk at his uni and I'll stop a couple of more places. So I, my hunch is that a number of us will, when travel eventually opens up again, travel less frequently, but perhaps for- Longer, uh, longer. longer. And more comprehensive, uh, more comprehensive things. That's possibly also a reflection of, of our cohort in that people are starting to get older kids so that it's easier to travel uh, and be away for two weeks than, than it was when the kids were younger. But, but I could see that in our future, that people will sort of, they will still travel, but they'll try to sort of maximize the travels in ways we haven't done previously. Sort of, I think traveling... Uh, Transatlantically, for instance, is something I will do less frequently. That's not to say that I will see fewer of my American friends, but I'll do it differently, I think. I could see that. Um, for the overall business of international relations, I mean, ours is a business of uh, fashions, of fads. I mean, with the 
enormous growth in, in terrorism and terrorism-related studies after 9-11, I think one would be foolish not to assume a massive growth in studies of global health one way or the other after this. Um, I, I, the international relations I know has always been a business where people run after what is, seems currently most interesting. And that this is as it should be. I mean, this is a, uh, even for us doing historical IR, you, you're looking for, sort of, okay, what can we what can we look at historically now? What can this tell us about future possibilities? I'm not very big, as you know, on, on learning lessons from history, but uh, it's always good to have as your sort of uh, starting point. What have people done before? What has happened after things like this in the past? Not because they guide us, but because they tell us something about possibilities and, and, and uh, might even illustrate roads not taken. So I think we will see a number of the global health section of the ISA will see a boom in membership. It's going to just triple. I mean, it, it has Jeremy, to be. Jeremy Ude and, and, and Stefan uh, Alban. Yeah, yeah. They're going to be swamped with, with, uh, with new people. Um, that I think is, is a, a very conservative estimate. People will be uh, doing this from a number of different angles. I mean, I've been thinking about myself about pandemics and, and state building, uh, state fragmentation, the implications for international authority, these kinds of things that interest me uh, more generally. But how, sort of, how does this relate to our current predicament? Um, so, so I think you will see this. You will see funding for this coming up. You'll see people throwing their weight behind it. Um, so that's on the on the on the subject matter of the of the discipline. We'll see a number of very very stupid things being said and written. Now, stupid, of course, being very subjectively here, but I think people will throw the uh, what to me would seem like utterly silly ideas at questions about pandemics, and some of them will actually turn out to be quite interesting, and many of them will turn out to be silly. That's okay. That's the way the business works. Um, well, what worries me and what I think worry a number of people, of course, is how will our professional associations deal with this? Um, because those are the homes of our conferences, our journals, much of our social academic life. Because it's sort of depending on how this develops, it's possible to think of a future where large conferences are not very high on the agenda. I mean, these are the last things to return, right? I mean, maybe we'll see a turn to more of these mid-level sized conferences, like 50 to 200 people, those kinds of things, regional things. Um, from a Norwegian perspective, it's likely that we will start traveling within Scandinavia before we start traveling to mainland Europe and mainland Europe way before we start traveling to the US. So um, what are the implications of that? I mean, the, the ISA is one organization that's fairly big and been around for a while. They have at least some money in the bank, but some of the 
smaller and younger associations, I mean, you, you fear for them. I mean, these are associations that are based largely, based their income largely around their conferences. One thing is the conference fee, but the other thing is that people pay their membership because they want to go to the conference. And if there's no conference to go to, why should they pay their membership? Uh, and how can you run an association if you don't have any money? So um, that's going to be a challenge. It's going to be interesting. It's going to be, I fear for a number of these associations. Thank you, Professor Lira, for joining me today on the, Hasey's, on the Hasey Scholar Podcast. I wish you and your family and everybody in Norway, but especially the Nupi crew, all the health and good cheer throughout all of this. The same to you guys in Utah. Okay. That was my interview with Halvard Lira of Nupi. Hope you enjoyed it. You could tell that we really um, enjoyed chatting with one another. He's become one of my best friends. In the relatively short time that I've known him, we have so many points in common. Um, not only as scholars, uh, but uh, as uh, erstwhile Gen Xers and um, people that are kind of in the sandwich generation where we're as dads taking care of our kids, but also checking in, especially during this pandemic, uh, on our parents. And so I think the points in common are really endless and it just makes me appreciate even more when I get a chance to, to chat with Halvard. Um, and I hope you enjoyed it. So the next uh, few weeks are going to be a little bit busy for me uh, now that the academic year is over this is usually the time when a lot of admin work and meetings tend to happen but I am hoping to have another interview up for you about three weeks after this um, in the meantime I hope you're all doing okay I myself am going to need uh, absolutely desperately need to take a bit of a break um, kind of recharge the batteries a little bit. Uh, it's been a pretty uh, challenging uh, year, but especially um, end of the spring semester for me, and I'm sure it is for many of you. So I'm going to take a little bit of time off, uh, at least from social media, emails, uh, doing any kind of admin work for a couple of days, I think in May, and then kind of get back at it uh, this summer um, when it comes to my research and um, obviously admin work and, and then all, also finding a little bit of time for some more interviews throughout the summer in this format. All right. So take care everyone. Uh, peace and uh, safety to you all. And until next time, cheers. <laughs>